Uh, I am really, really enjoying the sermon series that we've been doing at Hillcrest um, about life on mission, how we're on life on mission together, talking about um, how God sees our lostness, has seen our lostness, all the ways that we're lost from the very beginning, how he's been on a mission to find us, to bring us back to himself. Um, A few weeks ago, Tim said, you know, some of these sermons are going to be like the nuts and bolts of life on mission. And this is one of those weeks, so I'm really excited about that. That's the kind of stuff I like to talk about. So um, each week we're talking about kind of um, how we can see ourselves as missionaries wherever we find ourselves. That missionaries aren't just the people that we support and send, like us, to the campus, but um, that all of us are missionaries wherever we find ourselves. And uh, last week, Dan encouraged us to pray like missionaries, um, that, that we would pray for workers for the harvest as Jesus instructed us to do. And in the coming weeks, we'll talk about how to uh, act like a missionary, how to um, speak like a missionary, how to feel like a missionary. Today, we're going to talk about how to think like a missionary, um, and, and that's what I'm really excited about. So uh, my wife, Liz, and I, we I guess we sort of specialize, uh, like Tim said, in reaching international students at Western, um, which makes us somewhat peculiar missionaries in that sense. Most missionaries, when you send them overseas, um, you know, they're going to a specific place, they're going to a specific culture, uh, a specific language. We, however, <laughs> have been called to uh, Japan and Indonesia and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and the Netherlands and Egypt and Senegal and Colombia and Brazil. And um, I've actually met students from 73 countries, I counted up. Uh, and and uh, so we're somewhat peculiar in that way. And, and what I found over the years is that the good news about Jesus, what, what we call the gospel, is big enough for the whole world. It's big enough for all those places. In fact, that, that Jesus Christ is offering his life to everyone everywhere, in every culture, and what most world missionaries do when they go overseas is they'll go, under, they'll, they'll go through a lot of pretty intensive training. Uh, they'll do significant research into the culture they're going to. In our case, we've had to do a lot of significant research to understand 73 different countries and counting. Uh, but all this training is to help us to understand basically one question. How do I make the good news about Jesus make sense to someone who's from a different cultural background than me? How do I make the gospel resonate with someone who thinks and feels and acts really different from the way I was raised? So I want to give you an example of how that's worked in our context. And this will will sort of demonstrate uh, also how missionary training is really like on-the-job training. You you can't learn it all before you start. Uh, So little, you know, it's okay if we make mistakes. Uh, So there was a few years ago, there was a student from Thailand that was at Western. She was actually a a professor in Thailand, came here to to study English. And um, she was studying at Western. We told her all about Jesus in the context of our friendship, or so we thought. Um, But she decided she really wanted to follow Jesus. Um, Her name was Poor. And what was wonderful and exciting, she, she got real excited about following Jesus. We started to see God changing her. And uh, at one point, she decided, I want to be baptized. I, this is like a significant commitment of my life. This is, what, this is what I want my life to be. So she decided to be baptized. And that night, after she got baptized, her troubles actually started. <laughs> um, poor began that very night to have nightmares every night, continuously, after her baptism, where, um, where evil spirits were coming and trying to kill her. 
Um, and, and she would wake up just terrified. Uh, and night after night, it was a very, very real experience for her. She'd been involved in a lot of different spiritual things in her past. Because of that involvement, she was having these dreams that, that were just tormenting her. And, and she was terrified. Whenever she would come um, to CCF on Friday nights on campus or when she'd come to church here at Hillcrest, uh, she would get this overwhelming sense of fear and she would just have to leave. She, she was just being terrorized by evil spirits. Which, um, this is not my normal experience <laughs> in life. Uh, and, and so I talked to some friends of mine that lived in Thailand for many years because I did not know what to do. And so they told me, oh, yeah, this is very normal in Thailand when someone gets baptized. This happens just about every time. And so I, of course, said, oh, yeah, 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 normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So, so what do you do about that very casually, you know? Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally demons, everyday occurrence. Um, so what do you do? And essentially what they told me was that what the, the good news about Jesus, the gospel, included something that we had neglected to tell poor. We hadn't told poor the fact that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, had defeated the dark spiritual powers of the world. It simply hadn't crossed our minds to tell her this um, and to tell her this, that this was really good news. Why hadn't this occurred to me? Because I'm not Thai, because I've never had this experience. This wasn't normal for me in my cultural context. So poor, in many ways, became our teacher. This is one of the first times when I realized that the good news of Jesus was bigger than I, than I knew. Uh, and, and so she taught us how to think like missionaries in that sense. She taught us really what it is to think like God, I think. How can I communicate the good news in a way that's really meaningful to this person in their culture, in a way that resonates with her life experience, not just mine? Um, I needed to learn to think like a missionary. And, and thinking like a missionary, this isn't just like some kind of strategy or marketing ploy or something. I think it can kind of sound like that, but the reason that we were so compelled to try and figure this out was because we really cared about poor. We wanted these nightmares to stop, and we thought something that we're doing isn't, isn't working, isn't right. We realized we couldn't just say the same thing to her that we'd been saying to everyone else that we knew when we told them about Jesus. We had to think differently for her. So, so uh, as Tim said a few, a few weeks ago, Christ's love compels us. That's what it was. Christ's love compelled us to start to think, how do I make the gospel resonate with poor? Um, in, a, in a book called Evangelism in the Early Church, Michael Green, the author, says this, and it's a, a phrase that's really stuck with me for years. He says, it's a poor doctor who prescribes before he diagnoses. It would be a poor doctor who would prescribe before he would diagnose. We would be shocked if we went into a doctor's office and we were just assigned a random bottle of pills that we were promised, this, this will take care of your problem, before we'd even told the doctor our symptoms, right? Or if I came in with a sore throat and he said, here, let me put a cast on your arm, like, not, not helpful. We'd be shocked. We'd say, terrible doctor. That's not what I need to get, to get well. In the same way, um, we needed to let poor tell us what her symptoms were. We needed to let her tell us, here's what's wrong, so that we could prescribe what, what part of the gospel was good for her. So poor taught us what it meant to listen uh, and, and to, to diagnose what is it about the gospel that's especially good news for this person. To love someone enough to work hard to figure that out. So I'm going to pause her story there and come back to it. Because the reality is, I think, that we all need to start learning how to think like this. 
I wish that I'd, that I'd started thinking this way sooner. Uh, what does it look like for us to think like a missionary in our own cultural context here, in our ordinary life? Part of what that means um, is that we have to answer this question. How do I make the gospel make sense here in this culture? Uh, if, you, if you go to like missionary conferences and stuff, you'll probably hear the word contextualization. That's what this process is called, contextualizing the gospel. We contextualize the gospel when we put it in terms that make sense and resonate with the people that you're talking to. So this is not, this is important to realize, this is not the same thing as changing the gospel. I really don't think God is pleased if we tell people something that resonates with them that isn't true, <laughs> uh, because just because it's what they want to hear. Uh, the, that, I, I would say, is probably the one of the most unloving things that you could do to someone because they're eventually going to find out that you lied to them. That's not contextualization. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being familiar with the many ways the gospel is expressed in the scripture and then sharing something true and biblical that resonates with that person out of love and concern for their needs. So when I think about contextualization, there's basically three questions that I'm trying to ask myself. And, and these are things you might want to write down. So the first one is, what's the bad news that this person already knows? What's the bad news that this person already knows? I've really become convinced that everyone knows that the world isn't exactly right, that their own lives aren't exactly right. And, and we know, uh, and, and the scripture addresses this in many, many ways, actually. But, but we all know there's some bad news in the world. So that's the first question. What's the bad news this person already knows and believes? Second, where is this person looking for rescue right now? The scriptures teach us that if we look for rescue anywhere except for the Lord, it eventually doesn't satisfy and doesn't meet, it, it doesn't rescue us. And this has been very true in my experience. So figuring out where people are, are looking for rescue now and where it might be feeling now helps us explain how the Lord could actually rescue us from the, from the bad news we already know. So where is this person looking for rescue now? And then third, what's the good news they really wish was true? What's the good news they really wish was true? Now again, we all have wishes that are never going to come true. <laughs> but, and so, so we can't make the gospel into whatever we want it to be. But I've really also become convinced that many people really wish the gospel was true, but it hasn't been explained to them in a way that makes sense and resonates with them. What's the good news they really wish was true? And if we read the scripture carefully— you will find contextualization everywhere. Once I started reading it through this lens, I was, this is incredible. In the stories, as Jesus interacts with individuals, he's speaking differently to them. Uh, if you read the letters of Paul and Peter and John, they're all different the way that they talk. You'll find they're very aware of their audience and, and they speak in terms that make sense to them. So I'm going to just give one example of this from the Apostle Paul. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, uh, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. It's like a, it's a very uh, it's a short phrase. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, but what you'll notice is that Paul never once says this anywhere else in any of his letters. It's not something that he commonly said just to everyone. This, uh, this is important. He didn't write to the Colossians, the Romans, Thessalonians, anybody else. And so I started asking myself, why? Why would he say it just to the Philippians? It's because Paul knew how to contextualize the gospel. Philippi, where they lived, was a Roman colony. 
It was fundamental to their identity because being a Roman colony meant they were Roman citizens. They had all the same rights as people who lived in Rome. So they had property, legal rights, exemption from taxes, and very fundamental to their identity. They didn't live in Rome, but they were citizens of Rome, and so they had all these benefits, and it was fundamental to how they shaped their identity. So when they were used to this idea of living in one place, having citizenship in another place, and that that shaped who they were. So when Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, he's saying the same way you see yourselves as citizens of Rome, even though that's a distant place, God has made you citizens of his kingdom now, and that's going to shape your new identity. No one, none of the other letters, that, that didn't resonate with them. It didn't matter. So he contextualized how do they think? What's, a, what's an image I can use that really resonates with them? He contextualized the good news to their own experience. This is what God has done for you, he says. Paul was really one of the first people to do this well because he traveled so much and interacted with so many different cultures. Um, as you read the New Testament, you'll be amazed how the gospel is contextualized differently as you go through it and, and how it made sense to them. It's really amazing. And actually, I found as I read the scripture that way, the gospel over time for me has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. I realize what God has done is bigger and bigger. And that's great. It's big enough for everyone. But what's important to remember for me is that we all started somewhere. It, no one has ever understood the entirety of what God is doing in the world for all eternity at the first go. Uh, it started with what made sense to us and what resonated with us. So take a moment. I want you to think. Um, the f- when, when, it, when was it that you first understood the good news about Jesus? When did it click for you that it was good news for your life? Why did it click for you? I have a hunch for most of us, it clicked with us because someone explained it in a way that made sense to us. Someone explained it in a way that resonated with us. For me... Uh, It resonated because I was a a four-and-a-half-year-old with a very, very overactive conscience, and I felt guilty all the time. And so what my parents did, they didn't tell me about Jesus' power over evil spirits. They didn't tell me about the kingdom of God breaking into our world and all the implications of that. They told me, Jonathan, you don't have to carry that guilt around the way that you do. You are so burdened by this. Jesus can take care of that. You're so burdened. You don't need that. All those other things resonate with me now, but they didn't then. They, th- that's where it started for me. And of course, the gospel is much, much bigger than that, but it started there for me. For poor, it started with Jesus has power over the evil spirits in your life. And that doesn't usually resonate in our culture. So I, I, I Um, I wanted to think about, as I prepared this, what does resonate in our culture, in modern America? Um, And and one way to do this is to kind of analyze cultures on a broader scale. Liz and I do this a lot to help us understand the way the gospel connects in various cultures. So if I was going to do this for modern America here now, I would say in contrast to a lot of cultures, a few things I notice about our culture. One is that we're very consumeristic. Uh, we think money and stuff will satisfy our needs. And I, so I start asking myself these questions. What's the bad news that a consumeristic culture already knows? This one's interesting because I think we as a culture feel kind of guilty about our consumerism, actually. If you ask us, we'll say money can never bring us happiness, but we live as if it can, hoping for more and more and more. 
So the bad news we already know is that we'll never be satisfied by our money and our stuff, but we just don't know what else to do. We keep trying. That's the bad news for a consumeristic culture. Um, I'd also say we're, we're a pretty secular culture. Religion is very much an optional part of life. Uh, maybe should be kept private. Uh, and so w- uh, the second question, I, uh, where are we looking for rescue? I think where a secular culture looks for rescue is to ourselves. And, uh, and I've really found that we really aren't worth putting our hope in. Uh, over time, it seems like we aren't able to rescue ourselves throughout history. Uh, Maybe a secular culture needs to hear that there's a God who doesn't get corrupted, who doesn't fail, who actually has the power to rescue us. Third thing I notice about our culture is that we're very fragmented community, social-wise. We have social media, we have an insane amount of connection to one another online, but we still feel isolated. When we really need help, sometimes we don't know who to turn to. So what's the good news that a fragmented culture really wishes was true? Maybe it's that there would be a God that would actually know us. That would actually know the deeper parts, not the superficial parts that we put online and the way that we present ourselves publicly, but would actually know us, but would still stay with us. Who would pursue us, who would bring us into a deep relationship with himself at great cost to himself. Maybe that's good news for a fragmented culture. And I I think this kind of cultural analysis is really helpful. Um, But Liz actually helped shape my thinking on this about contextualization in this way. She said, you know, this kind of cultural analysis is good and we do it, but it's a lot like um, personality tests for individuals. Okay, now if you're familiar like with the Myers-Briggs test, Liz is an INFJ, which is the personality type that loves personality tests, which is probably why she came up with this. Um, I'm an ISFJ, which is Mother Teresa's personality type. Um, (laughs) These kind of tests are helpful for broadly defining who we are, but they don't 100% predict our, our thoughts and our actions, our behavior. So, you know, they've been helpful to us, to me and Liz, for, for things in our marriage and how we relate to one another. But it doesn't work for me to say, oh, I already know how Liz would act or think about this because she's an INFJ. I don't need to ask her. I don't need to talk to her about those things. I already know. What kind of marriage would that be, Right. In the same way, I think analyzing a culture can be very helpful in understanding how people think, but you still have to talk to people. You still have to ask questions. You still have to get to know individuals. You have to let people teach you how the gospel will resonate with them. So more importantly, I think, than knowing the trends, as as helpful as that is, you have to actually know people. And so when I started thinking about, okay, well then how do I contextualize the gospel to real people, I thought of some real people. Uh, I thought of one of my relatives who is um, fighting very hard against alcohol addiction. And the bad news that she already knows is that she's been trapped for years and years in an addiction and has consumed her life. And I think even the worst bad news for her, a lot um, of—I thought about how she couldn't come to our family reunion because there was going to be a lot of alcohol there from other relatives— and she knew she'd be really tempted, so she knew she couldn't come. And I thought, you know what she really wishes was true? That there were 
people who were radically countercultural in that way. My family reunion was very normal in our culture. That's how our culture works. But she wishes there would be people who would say, you know what, for the sake of you participating in our community, I don't need to drink. I don't need to have that here. That's fine. Just come. I would rather be with you. And I thought, wait, that's exactly the kind of people that the gospel produces. <laughs> that's exactly what Paul said in Romans 14. 20 to 21. He says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it's wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. I thought, what good news that would be for her. That there would be people, the good news that when we, when we experience the sacrifice of Christ for us, that he would give his life for us, then we'd say, I'll lay down anything for the sake of someone else because what Jesus has done for me. That doesn't resonate so much with my own experience, never having had that, that kind of struggle. But for her, that would be good news. That would be really good news. Um, I thought about uh, I, I heard from someone in our congregation that the people in his life are all wealthy, retired guys that, that see nothing but endless games of golf for the rest of their life, and then they're going to die. That's, <laughs> I, I didn't put it that way. <laughs> uh, but the bad news they already know is also in the scripture. Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3 the author says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And the good news they might wish was true is what we said in our, uh, that, that seminar, John 10.10. 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And I think that means from beginning to end, full life, even when you're retired, there could still be purpose to their life in Christ. That might resonate with them. And I thought about one of our neighbors, uh, probably the neighbor we interact with the most. She's a really, really good mom. She has four kids. She's raising them by herself because her husband abandoned her for someone else. And she's been used and abandoned and betrayed by him and by other people in her life. And the bad news she already knows is that that people abandon you, that people betray you, that people use you. And the good news she might really wish was true is also in the scripture. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? But imagine this, okay? Imagine that today, Liz and I go home from church, we knock on her door, and we say, I have great news for you. She'd say, really? What is it? And I say, there's more to life than endless games of golf. Jesus wants to bring purpose and meaning to your life. She would say, my life isn't meaningless. I love my kids. My life is very fulfilling. What are you talking about? Why is this good news? I don't play golf. You think I have time to play golf? That's what she'd say. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Four kids. Um, this is why we think like a missionary. This is why we think like God. This is why we contextualize the gospel. Because we love our neighbors. Because we love our neighbors. We want to speak in a way that makes sense and resonates with them. 
So I'm going to ask us some questions. Before I do that, though, I, I did want to, um, as you know, Tim said earlier, if you're here and you don't call yourself a Christian, it's a very courageous thing to do. I think that's true. I've been to mosques a few times with Muslim friends, and it's really scary to be from a different religion. And anyway, you feel like you don't know what, if you're going to do something wrong. So I just want to applaud your courage for being here. And it might feel like this is kind of an odd sermon. I was thinking, with really, this whole series about life on mission might feel kind of odd to you if, you, if you're not there. That, that as if you're like some sort of target for Christians, that you know, it's our mission to get you in. I hope that, you, that you're not hearing that, because I don't think that's true. Uh, I think your first identity is that God created you. That's everyone's first identity. Before we all put religious labels on ourselves, we're just human beings. So what I would hope that you would hear this morning is that the good news about Jesus is big enough for all the bad news. And it's so important and so good that we just don't want anyone to miss it. And that's why we talk about these things. It's big enough for all the war and all the violence, for all the disease, for all the broken families, for all the internal tension in our life, for all the ways we've wrecked the world. The gospel is big enough for that. And we just want to communicate it clearly. We would hate to have someone miss out on the life that Jesus offers them because we weren't willing to, to put in the work to think about how to communicate to them. That's why we talk about this. So I'm, it's because we really love people. And I hope that makes sense to you. And now I do have some questions that I think are important for us, for, for all of us to think about. And I encourage you to write down your answers so that you remember them. The first question is a question for you. Because God wants to use, I think, your own experience to help you communicate the good news to your friends. So first question is, what was it about the gospel that was especially good news for you? What was it about the gospel that was especially good news for you when you heard it? Was it that you don't have to be afraid of what happens after you die? Was it that, that evil spirits aren't going to torment you in your dreams anymore? Was it that you don't have to feel dirty because of what's been done to you in the past? What was it? about the gospel that was especially good news for you. While you think about that, the worship team can, can come back up. What was it that was good news for you? And then I want you to think about someone else in your life, someone that you really love. And I want you to ask, what's the bad news that they already know? What's the bad news they already know? What do they already know they need to be rescued from? Is it a deep sense of loneliness? Is it a fear that we're going to totally destroy the earth? Is it that they were abused and they don't know how to handle that kind of wickedness? What's, what's the bad news they already know? And where are they looking for rescue but it's not working? Maybe they're looking to social media for rescue, but they're desperate to connect, but nobody there actually cares about them for their real needs and hurts in, in real life. Maybe they're looking for satisfaction in a bigger house or a better job, but it's still leaving them empty. Where are they looking and it's failing them? And what do they really wish was true? What do they really wish was true? Do they wish there was more to life than playing golf every day until you die? Do they wish that someone would heal their body? Do they wish that someone could forgive them for something? What do they really wish was true? That actually is true. What good news could you bring them? I'm going to finish poor story now, like I promised. Um, 
a couple of poor friend, poor's friends, um, they were just ordinary college students, they decided, okay, we're going to talk to Poor about this good news. We're going to tell her what the gospel is for her. Poor was so happy uh, and, and so excited to hear that the good news included Jesus' power over these spirits that were terrorizing her life. Poor experienced a release of God's spirit in her life, a deepening of joy, a freedom from fear. It was incredible, incredible to see. Eventually, when... Um, when the demons would come to her in her dreams, she would just tell them to leave in Jesus' authority. And she would say it in Thai and English, just in case they only spoke one language. <laughs> but they left. They would leave instantly. They never came back. She discovered the gospel was really true in a new way. She wouldn't have discovered that if we hadn't told her, if we hadn't put in the work to do that. We had to enter her culture, her background, her own experience in order to bring actual good news to her. So the question for us is this. What do you think might happen here in our culture, in, among people that we love, if we would think that way, if we would be willing to think like a missionary?